Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Stephen Medvick, who's the author of In Defense of Politicians, The Expectations Trap, and Its Threat to Democracy. Stephen, how are you doing today? I'm well. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Um, We've talked before Mm -hmm. uh, in the context of your review for um, one of the journals, but this is a chance to talk to you about your own writing. Uh, So before we get to that, uh, maybe you could reintroduce yourself, uh, where you are, where you've been, and, and uh, the way to, to set up the book. Sure. Uh, I'm currently Associate Professor of Government at Franklin and Marshall College uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I did my, uh, my Ph.D. at Purdue uh, and, uh, and taught at Old Dominion University in Virginia for about five years before moving to Franklin and Marshall. Wonderful. This is um, uh, also on a slightly different subject than, than you wrote that review, um, you know, this this is also subject very much in the news, and there are so many books out there that that decry what's wrong with Washington. Mm-hmm. You seem to set out to do something a little different. Um, you kind of offer a defense of of Washington and of politicians. What what motivated you to write the book? What what was the what was the initial urge to to put this book out? Well, I think there were kind of two motivations. One was maybe. Um, a little more abstract or theoretical, uh, and, and, and the other was sort of just a daily kind of annoyance. So <laughs> I'll start with the uh, the more theoretical, and that, that's just that I'm more and more concerned about um, the growing dissatisfaction with, with government and politics. I mean, of course, Americans have always been skeptical of government and distrustful of, of politicians, and to some extent that that sort of skepticism is, is healthy in a democracy. But it seemed to me that that uh, this kind of blanket condemnation of all politics and all of government um, is, you know, is becoming worse now than than it's been in the past. Now, I don't have really strong evidence for that because I didn't do, you know, a historical uh, uh, analysis or at least a lengthy historical analysis. Uh, but it just, ha- I just had that feeling, and and my concern is that this distrust and this skepticism is turning into cynicism, which of course is really corrosive for, for government, uh, for democracy, because it, it undermines the legitimacy of, of government. 
Um, and so that was the kind of theoretical. The, the more day-to-day kind of uh, annoyance was just hearing people, and this is friends and, and family members and neighbors, but also pundits and analysts who, you know, are knowledgeable about politics, um, hearing them, watching them on television, blame the dysfunction that they, that they uh, claim they see in politics on the bad behavior of politicians. Um, and so that, you know, you hear things all the time like they're only concerned with re-election or they're too partisan or they're too ideological. And it struck me that this was a misunderstanding of the way our system of cop politics and government work. Um, or if it's not a misunderstanding, it's just naive. You know, it's a, a naive understanding. And so what I wanted to do was defend politicians in particular, but also remind people of how our system is designed. Yeah, and the way you set this up is by talking about, an, uh, quote, an expectations trap. It's, it's in your, the title of your book. Right. Um, so what, what are the trappings uh, uh, for the public of this uh, expectations or, or um, not the right expectations? What, what is the expectations trap? Yeah, so the expectations trap generally, the, 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 the term that I coined for it, is that um, it, it's just a contradictory set of expectations that the public has for politicians. So they simultaneously want politicians to be contradictory things. Um, and I, and I kind of lay out a couple of different aspects of the trap. Um, and, and so one, for example, is what I call the leader and, or, and follower trap. And so po- the public often wants politicians to lead. You know, they, they, they blame them or they condemn them for pandering to the public, you know, or watching public opinion polls. So they really want them to lead and do what's right, even if it's not popular. But, of course, the minute that they do that, uh, they get blamed for being out of touch or, or for ignoring the will of the people or not being responsive to the public. So they want, it, you know, it's hard for politicians to figure out which one they ought to be doing. Um, another one of the traps is the, the, the principled and pragmatic traps. So they, they want politicians who have a strong sense of values and, and, and a strong set of principles, and they want them to stand by those principles. You know, they don't want them to sell out, and yet they want them to compromise. Well, what they, of course, what they have to compromise on if they're going to compromise is their, are their principles, right? And so they can't really do both at the same time. Uh, and then finally, I, I talk about uh, the, the uh, ordinary and exceptional uh, trap. They want, I think we want politicians to be exceptional in lots of ways, and there's pretty good evidence for this. You know, we want them to be uh, extremely uh, competent. We want them to be really honest and trustworthy. We want them to be empathetic. Um, we want them to have all kinds of leadership skills that are probably not typical for, for most people. Um, and yet we, you know, on the campaign trail, we put them through all kinds of indignities. We want them to be just like us, you know, the kind of person that we can have a beer with or something. And so they have to be able to hunt. They have to be able to bowl. They have to be able to milk a cow. And, you know, and so it's really difficult to find somebody who's um, really exceptional in lots of ways uh, and, and sort of cut out for leadership, but then to be an ordinary, you know, Joe. Right. And this isn't just the sort of the public in general. You also talk about kind of the, the, the punditry class as, as falling into this same trap. And, and one of the ways that, that you, would, you address this is by looking at your, the case study that you present in Chapter 5, which is of the 2011 debt ceiling debate, a debate that continues today. Um, you argue that critics of the debate got things wrong. What did they get wrong? Did they get the same things wrong that the public gets wrong? Or, or what did this case study allow you to do in the book uh, to, to clarify the, the situation? Sure. I think they did get it wrong in many of the same ways that the public gets it wrong. Uh, they they seem to think that, you know, the, the problems that uh, politicians are dealing with are simple 
things to, to, to solve. So, um, you know, so one example is that, and this is not a pundit, but, you know, the NFL lockout was happening during the 2011 debt ceiling crisis. And when it was solved, when it, when it was finally resolved, the owner of the Patriots came out and said, well, I hope Washington takes a lesson from us because uh, dealing with the debt ceiling is a lot easier than dealing with the NFL lockout, which just on its face I think is absurd. Um, but, you know, he's a smart guy. You, you would think he would, he would know better. But even pundits who, who, you know, are on the cable talk shows, um, they'll say things like, you know, the, the four or five of us sitting around this table right now could solve this problem in, you know, in 30 minutes or something. Why is it taking the politi- Why are politicians behaving the way they're behaving? Why are they acting like children? They're acting stubborn. You know, why can't they solve the problem? But of course, I don't, first of all, I don't believe that four or five people, unless they completely agree, uh, on all aspects of the problem, I don't think even four or five people sitting around a table would really be able to to solve a complicated process, problem like the debt or the debt ceiling. Um, and, but even if they could, they're not res- they're not responsible to anyone. They won't be held accountable for the decision they make. So they do what they think is best, and then they walk away. They don't have to worry about any fallout. Politicians, of course, in a democracy, in a representative form of government have to answer to people for what they do. They have to listen to their constituents and do what not only what their constituents want them to do, but what they think is best. And lots of times those things are in are in conflict. So it's a much, much, much more complicated process than than the pundits give it credit for. Yeah. And what you what you sort of come to in the book is is that maybe some things could be done about this. Um, but you suggest that simply electing better politicians, right? Sort of the throw the bums out, mm-hmm. is not the solution. Um, what are the solutions that, that you, you recommend in the book? What, what can be done about this, given that this is a, um, not a new problem, this is a problem that's been going on a long, a long time, and also that, that I think you suggest in the book, it's also kind of a human nature problem as well. Sure. Um, wh- what could be done? Are there any practical things that could be done to, to avoid this expectation trap or to change the nature of our discourse to... Um, uh, uh, sort of recalibrated around um, more realistic expectations. Well, of course, one <laughs> one thing that a professor is always going to argue is that you know better education would would help. Um, I mean, and and I and I'm only sort of half joking about that. I mean, I really do think that if people sort of understood the complexity of the system and they recognized how the system's designed, they would realize that that whether you like this, that design or not, the system's working pretty much as as planned as designed. Um, now, what that suggests is that once we understand what the, um, you know, what the design is like, if we wanted to undertake some kind of significant reform in that system, uh, we could try to do that. Now, that's heavy lifting, and that would be very, very difficult. But I think that's one, you know, that's one way we might approach this. So, uh, you know, what, one of the things I draw upon in the book is, is uh, Aaron Leipert's um, discussion of the different forms of, of democracy, and, and you know, and he notes in his book patterns of the de- patterns of democracy, which I think was on the podcast not not long ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he he uh, he points out that different different combinations of institutions and processes either will either encourage um, sharing of power or they'll encourage the concentration of power. And most systems, most countries. Uh, decide to go full force one way or the other. So they, they, all of the institutions and processes they put in place 
um, encourage sharing of power, or at least most of them. Uh, or, on the other hand, some countries go in the direction of concentration of power. Well, one of the things you notice if you read Leifert closely is that um, in the United States, we have almost a perfect mix of the two, so that lots of our, lots of our institutions um, are, are encouraged to share powers. So the separation of powers, of course, is one. Federalism is another. Um, but our electoral and our party system uh, encourages the concentration of power. In other words, a two-party system is going to lead to majorities in the House, in the Senate, uh, and, and even in the presidency that think that they've been elected with a mandate, right? So the, the easy way to think of this is that our system creates majorities only to then thwart those majorities, right? It sets up majorities in the House, Senate, and the presidency and says, all right, now go to work, but we're going to separate powers and have checks and balances and make it nearly impossible for you to actually act on the electoral mandate that you got. So now if people understood that, we, we could maybe change our electoral system and maybe go to something like proportional representation. Or we could change some of the institutions, you know, some of the separation of powers, like that one would be a, a far cry, I think, or, or, a, or a big stretch. But we could do that. We could undertake some serious constitutional reform if we wanted a system that either really encouraged compromise and sharing of power or just let the majority, uh, you know, work its will until the next election. I, I mean, I don't think we're likely to do that, but if, if, if dysfunction, the dysfunction that people see in our politics nowadays is the result uh, of our, of the design of our system, um, then that would be one way to, to solve it. But, but short of that, I think just understanding um, how what the incentives in the system are uh, would go a long way because I think what pundits and the, and the average person would do as a result uh, is that they would cut politicians a break. They would say, look, I understand why you're doing what you're doing. I might disagree with it, but I'm not cynical about why you're doing what you're doing. Have, have you had this? The book is recently out, um, but, but have you had any elected officials read the book, or if you talk to them about your perspective on this. The reason I ask the question is, you often gather that that um, many elected officials are, are just as guilty as the public is in general of, of viewing the job they hold in this peculiar kind of way, that the kind of almost self-hatred of the their office leads many of them to complain about the very things that their constituents complain about. And some of that is just to get into this Kind of public public dialogue that that uh, is is popular, but have you had that chance? And and if not, what what do you think the reaction would be of elected officials to your perspective and some of your recommendations? Well, my sense is that many of them, kind of off the record, would say, um, you know, I appreciate that the perspective because I'm doing the best I can here. You know, I really did. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've met lots and lots of politicians over the years, as I'm sure you have as well. And you know, mo the vast majority got into politics for for the best of reasons. You know, they had they saw a local problem they wanted to fix, so they got on the on the city council and they liked helping the community, and then they ran for state rep or something, and then Congress. You know, they 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 really um, they I. I think they're, most of them are in it for the right reasons. Um, so I think they would appreciate the perspective. But I have to say the only politician I've really uh, talked to about it was uh, Mayor Bloomberg from New York City who, mm -hmm. uh, who gave our uh, commencement address uh, last year, and the president of the college um, uh, you know, set up a meeting between myself and a couple of my colleagues and, and the mayor. And the president told him about the book. Uh, it, it was you know, just coming out. And um, uh, and he said, I totally disagree. He said, he said, I think, you know, he said, look, I think, you know, the, 
and, and the example he gave, probably not surprising uh, to, to many people, is, is gun control. And he said, look, we'd have sensible gun control uh, if it wasn't for money and politics, if it wasn't for the NRA. And, and politicians, you know, want to stay in office so badly that they that they that they're they're you know cowed by the by the NRA. Um, so he had a pretty cynical view of, of why politicians behave the way they do, and, and that was a little disappointing to me. But but, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, it's a you're right. It's a it's a common perspective even among politicians, and and it's one of the saddest things to me is that to hear politicians um, bash politicians, you know, and bash politics um, on the campaign trail in 2012. Mitt Romney was asked um, by a little girl, what you know, what I think it was a little girl, it was a child who said, uh, you know, what, what should uh, a young person do if they want to go into politics? And he said, run away, turn and run away. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's that sort of attitude, which is funny, you know, and it's endearing to the audience, I'm sure, but it really undermines faith in our system, I think. You know, it really does create the kind of cynicism that I'm trying to argue against. So that is really, yeah. to me, um, you know, quite disappointing that politicians engage in the same sort of thing. Right. Now, before we started, you mentioned that you were just cycling off of your uh, uh, department chair service. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that mean that we have another book to look forward to from you soon? What's next on your research agenda? Well, I've just finished up um, the uh, second edition to, to my Campaigns and Elections textbook, and uh, I'm now turning attention to a brand-new project. So I'm in the very early stages, so there, there, there probably won't be a book for a while, um, but I'm I'm curious to do uh, even more work along the same lines of this book. And this book is is largely polemical. You know, I'm making an argument here that I think that I hope people will uh, will be open to. You know, that they that they or at least I think they should hear. Um, but I really want to start to dig a little more deeply into this dissatisfaction with the system. And, and I'm becoming, as I said at the beginning, I'm I'm concerned about people's dissatisfaction with politics and government, and I'm worried that it's becoming a dissatisfaction with democracy itself. And so one of the things I'd like to do, uh, and I'll be on sabbatical in the spring, and I'm going to try to start this project, but I'd like to begin to investigate exactly how people understand democracy, what it is that they think democracy uh, is, and, and, and how it should operate. Um, and so really try to, to dig into a democracy sort of as it's applied, you know, as it's practiced, to see if to see what it is, and I suspect people are going to have the same kinds of, uh, con- you know, um, contradictory expectations about what democracy is and should be. Um, but I think it's important that we understand, you know, what people mean when they say democracy. Uh, you know, what what they how they think it ought to operate, and if they're consistent in their views about how it ought to operate, maybe we can reform the system to 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 conform to those to those views and those expectations. But I. Sadly, I think they probably won't be. I, I think they'll probably be fairly confused about what it requires and, and how it should operate, and I think there will probably be contradictory expectations. I mean, that's my hunch, um, but, um, but I'd like to explore it by doing some survey work and doing some focus group work and really, really having long conversations with, with, um, you know, with citizens about what, what they think about democracy. Yeah, well, I, I look forward to that, and I enjoyed this book, uh, In Defense of Politicians, The Expectations Trap and Its Threat to Democracy, published this year by Routledge, a good friends at Routledge. Uh, Stephen Medvick, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Heath. It was a pleasure.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.